Hello and welcome to The Sacred. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield, and this is a podcast about the things we hold sacred, how to engage across our differences, and what drives those involved in our public conversations. Every week, I speak to someone with some kind of public voice, from artists to archbishops, journalists to jurists, politicians to poets, from a wide range of different perspectives on politics, religion, and everything else. In this episode, you'll hear a conversation I had with Daniel Finkelstein. Daniel is Baron Finkelstein, a member of the House of Lords, and has a column in the Times newspaper. He is a former executive editor of the Times and advisor to John Major and William Hague. We spoke about the impact of the Holocaust on his Jewish family, what drew him to politics, and how he thinks about the moral responsibility of the political decisions in public life. Daniel, thank you so much uh, for coming to talk to me about something we don't get much time to talk about in public, often particularly in this political moment of hurly-burly. I wanted to ask you about your sacred values. And by that, I mean, in some ways, whatever you ascribe to it, but it's something around the deepest principles we try and live by, the things that when they're pressed on, they make us feel very compromised. And by surfacing them, we hope to help listeners understand a little bit more deeply what's formed the people who shape our public conversations. Um, I've been thinking a lot about what that might be because I'm a little bit uncomfortable with red lines of all sorts. Uh, I think it leads one sometimes to lose one's sense of proportion and to lose the fact that um, other people also have their red lines and it can clash. Uh, and you'll see why it makes me uncomfortable when I tell you what my, my choice is. Uh, and, it, and it's generosity. Um, I think generosity materially but also of spirit about people's uh, character, their behaviour, the reasons for their mistakes, um, the fact that they may have needs that you can help them with. Uh, all of those things lead me to think that generosity about and toward other people is sacred, um, that it would be pompous to suggest that because I think it's sacred, I never uh, have an ungenerous thought uh, act on an ungenerous impulse or fail in my duty of generosity. I do all of those things. Um, but if you were to ask me what it is that does guide my actions more than any other value most of the time, uh, it's that. It can lead me into naivety because I tend to ascribe to people generous motives or good motives when sometimes I discover later they didn't have any. Uh, I tend to expect from people generosity and don't always receive it. Uh, but I find that if I try to behave that way myself and lead others to think that I have an anticipation they will behave like that, that it makes for a better life for myself and the people I encounter. Really interesting what you said about red lines. And is that because you, like some people's associations with what's sacred might be that it's inviolable and, and therefore something about the sacred can actually be dangerous? Well, look, if you, if you say uh, you are going to be generous, that also means accommodating other people's opinions and values. I find nothing more tiresome uh, than to find myself in a political argument in which somebody talks at you uh, about their political ideas as if there was no alternative to them, despite the fact they look at the world and realise there must be an alternative to them because lots of people hold that opinion. And we're seeing that at the moment, by the way, in, in the debate about on the European Union, and people find it very difficult to think that other people might have a point. Uh, so if you value generosity, agree great deal, uh, 
you have to be except you have to have a little skepticism about red lines it's sort of part of it uh, so um weirdly uh, uh holding generosity as sacred is in itself uh, problematic you, there can be moments for example when other people think generosity is misplaced and that you're giving generosity to people who don't deserve it and that the generosity you're according to someone for their point of view for example is offensive to the point to the person whom they disagree with or whom they might denigrate uh, so um I, I the reason i started with that is that i think it's you have to be careful uh to understand that whatever you may regard as absolutely a bedrock value of your own, uh, you do have to listen to other people and to judge the circumstances and always be open to the fact that what you hold as the most important thing may not be the most important thing to everyone in the circumstances you're in. I'm really interested in that connection, the possible connection between naivety and generosity. And I really like the review you did of Malcolm Gladwell's Talking to Strangers, and I haven't had a chance to read it properly yet, although I've read enough of reviews that I feel like I understand the bulk of it. And that sense of when is a kind of open-minded posture towards the world an invitation to be taken advantage of? And when we're talking and thinking a lot, as I do, about public conversations and engaging across difference and wanting to build empathy, where... Are there people that we shouldn't talk to? Are there places that we shouldn't go? Are there kind of voices that we shouldn't platform? And I instinctively resist that, but I'm thinking about it a lot at the moment. Um, you know, what, what, it, what is legitimate generosity and empathy and open-heartedness to the voices of the other? That's not really a question. Sorry. But no, no, it, it's, it's a very profound question. Um, the, it, it, politics is about balancing um, values. You have to try to create a political system in which everyone can live uh, that accords broadly with the view of the majority, but creates laws that even the minority feel that they can, can respect, and where the people who feel they can't respect it are such a small uh, minority that everyone feels it reasonable to sanction them for their failure to obey the law. Uh, and that means that you have to compromise yourself, uh, and sometimes, I suppose, it uh, it will mean according freedom to people to say things that you find really offensive. But of course, um, even that attachment that I have to to allowing people to express themselves because I know that I'm not the repository of all wisdom uh, it, it does have a limit because some of that can be oppressive to people. Uh, and um, and can be threatening, uh, and you are constantly using judgment to draw the line between that that you think is an acceptable uh, allowance to people to express their contrary opinion, and that which is deeply threatening to people. And in that, you have to use a sense of proportion. Unfortunately, there's no clear line, uh, and. I tend towards a liberal view, but I'm also aware that that may be because I'm a man, uh, I'm prosperous, I'm white, I live in the Western in Western Europe, I live in a big city. In other words, I have the strength to resist a lot of people's um, oppressive language, so therefore I may that may lead to my liberal position of greater tolerance of it. I'm aware of that, it tempers that view a bit. Uh, but I think if you become... Uh, too easily scared by people's language, um, too ready to fail to permit people, you, first of all, you transgress against the principle of generosity. You're not being generous-spirited about others' contrary views. Uh, 
And um, secondly, you also make society less creative, less discursive and less free. And those things are also important as well as protecting people against the consequences of somebody's offensive speech. Mm. We're going to come back to lots of those threads, I think. But uh, I want to wind back because one of the things we try and do is locate people in their story to give people a sense of the kind of particularity of the voices in public conversation and the different ways we've been shaped. So I'd love you to paint a picture of your childhood, if you're willing, and particularly if there are any religious, philosophical, political ideas that were really in the air and very formative. Oh, absolutely they are. In fact, if you'd asked me for a thing that I regarded as sacred as opposed to a value, I probably would have said the memory of my parents, both of whom are no longer longer alive, um, died in the last few years. Um, I'm the son of two refugees. Um, My mother was... uh, the daughter of a man who was the archivist of the anti-Nazi movement, his wife, who was one of the earliest PhDs, uh, economics, she studied the economics of national socialism. So both of them were students at a very early stage of the nascent Nazi movement in in Germany, where, they, where my mother was born in 1933 in Berlin. They moved to Holland um, because in 1933, my grandfather needed to move his archive very quickly uh, and lived in the German Jewish community in Holland. My grandfather came to this country uh, at the beginning of the war, did obtain visas for my uh, for the rest of his family, but they didn't arrive in time. And my mother was then in Vesterbork and Belsen concentration camps before uh, eventually becoming part of a prisoner exchange and coming to uh, Britain from America. She was at school with Anne Frank, is that right? Yes, so my mum was... Actually, my my mother was a little bit younger than Anne Frank, um, and her sister Ruth was at school with Margot. But the families knew each other. They were part of the same Jewish community, a reform Jewish community. And by the way, I'm quite unusual because on all sides of my family, in all directions... uh, we're third generation reform Jews. Um, it's quite a lot of reform Jews have a, you know, an all, more orthodox background. Mm-hmm. But actually, um, uh, for those people who don't know much about Judaism, um, I suppose reform is uh, which began as a sort of rebellion against the over uh, chaotic uh, um, services of orthodox Judaism, but really continued and developed as a way of saying that the five books of Moses were guidance, um, but didn't provide a timeless uh, and uh, and simply interpreted laws. And it doesn't, uh, it isn't based on simple rabbinical authority. Um, so it would be kind of somewhere between uh, an orthodox and people who'd call themselves kind of liberal Jews. Well, yes, although it shades towards liberal, and I am actually a liberal Jew. So uh, just to develop a little bit, my... my um, my father, who uh, was born in Lvov, in, and he um, uh, came to this country after his father had been imprisoned in um, in Soviet labor camp. Um, but when Hitler invaded the Soviet Union, uh, he was released and reunited with my dad and his mum, who by that time had been deported to the edge of Siberia. Uh, and... Um, they joined the Anders Army, which was the, the sort of Polish Free Army, uh, and we went with them to Palestine, actually, uh, to Persia first, and then to Palestine, and then to London. And my father met my mother in London. So the, the most important part of my background, uh, from a political point of view, is, I suppose, an anti-totalitarian view. But I'll come back to another aspect of that, which is also very important. On the religious front... Um, 
my father had not come from a particularly religious background. Uh, they were Jew my grandfather or his father had been a sort of Jewish national representative on the Wolf City Council. It was a very integrated community. He was a businessman mainly, and he wasn't interested really particularly in Judaism. But when my father met my mother's father met his mater my maternal grandfather. Uh, he became intellectually interested in Judaism, and although he was my father was an engineer, sort of pioneer of measurement science, he um, his other, the other strand of his intellectual work was the study of Judaism, the history of it, and he was um, uh, extremely well versed in it, and ultimately. Um, he did a, after he'd retired as a, a full-time academic he remained a scientist the rest of all of his life but he became he got a phd at the leo beck college the rabbinical college in the history of the polish rabbinate of warsaw which gives you some sort of feel for his intellectual and personal hobbies so i like i like football and pop music and he studied the rabbinical student the uh, rabbinical school of Warsaw. He'd be more uh, use in, in a pub the 19th quiz. Century. Yes. Actually, he was good at pub quiz. My dad was quite good at uh, pub quizzes um, uh, because he had a phenomenal knowledge of lots of things. When he died, my nephew said, uh, now that pup has gone, we'll need to use the internet, uh, which was kind of uh, a description of what he was like. Anyway, the, the reason I'm telling you that is he, he was very committed to Judaism, but in a slightly odd way, as a hobby. I'm not sure that he really believed he wasn't very orthodox um and he uh, we didn't keep kosher for example for almost all of his life um he was very uh, but he was very committed to it it was very important to him uh i wondered actually so important was it to him and so much was it driven by his intellectual his hobby which i didn't really share i wondered whether when he was no longer there to guide us all Myself and my brother, not my sister who'd married someone a bit more orthodox, but myself and my brother might not might not bother anymore. Bit, yeah. But we haven't. It's very interesting. But I have become um, so uh, so. I've become a liberal Jew um, for a very practical reason. Actually, I moved to Pinner, uh, and uh, when I had first had children, and we needed to find, it was too far from my old Reform synagogue, and we need to find a new one, and that had more young people in it but had kids uh, that would be my son's age and so therefore we thought for him to grow up there and have a bar mitzvah being the liberal youth movement would be a good thing and that turned out to be completely correct because he has been very happy and is very committed my older son particularly but my middle son as well to judaism through through the liberal jewish youth movement but i became um I, I was much more at home in the liberal synagogue because, well, we'll go into my personal faith because of that, uh, because it, because theologically I was more comfortable with it, and that has been, and that has made it possible for me to uh, remain much more engaged with the religion of Judaism. I think I always would have been with the community. I almost have to be because of being a Jew in public life. The community wants part of you and you end up doing a lot of community events. But religiously, I wonder whether I would have been if I hadn't joined Northwood uh, and been a liberal synagogue. Mm. So I am going to, uh, I sometimes feel it's dropping the G-bomb. I am going to ask about God. And I've talked to quite a lot of people who are uh, have a strong sense of their culturally Jewish identity, but religiously would self-describe as atheist or a, a bit more complicated. And 
even in asking it, I can feel the tension because it's such a private and personal question that maybe we can't even find words for. But where, where do you stand on the God okay. thing? So sure. So it's it, it, you're quite right in um, in saying it's a personal thing. Um, but I did have to be much more clear sighted about it, clear minded about it when I first had children. Because the children ask questions and you have to be able to give them give them an answer. And interestingly, my father always gave me slightly muddy answers on this, but I hope I've given my children a bit of a clearer one. Uh, I would never call myself an atheist. And part of the reason for that is I don't want to cut myself off from the community of God. Uh, I, I feel uh, a great affinity with other Jews and other actually other and a great sympathy towards other religious people. Um, but having said that, I would, ne- and, and I remember once that an article I wrote for the Jewish Chronicle, they interpreted it as being atheist and put that in the headline, and I asked them to change it uh, before it went into print because I wouldn't, uh, uh, never would identify in that way. Um, that having been said, I do not believe in a god that can find your cat uh, when you lose it. Um, I think that's preposterous, um, and I struggle with the idea that anyone can really believe in such a thing when it's so obviously scientifically not true. Um, but I do think um, that uh, there is a spirit that unites people that goes beyond um, each each person um, that um, binds us together uh, and uh, um, makes uh, reciprocal fairness a an important value between us. And I'm happy to attach the idea of God to that. Right? Um, I also think that um, religion does not depend upon being certain. Well, so, so for some people, religion depends entirely on faith. It is a matter entirely of faith. And that allows them to dismiss almost every question about, um, for instance, um, is homosexuality a sin? Right. Um, so I've uh, been in touch with a Jewish uh, journalist whom I respect, uh, and his view is simply, well, it says it's a sin in the Torah, so it is. Uh, that is an unsatisfactory explanation to what I regard as a really terrible uh, conclusion. Um, and my belief is that uh, you can't pray for thousands of years and learn nothing, right? Um, and I I think that it brings to you wisdom and tolerance and generosity. Uh, that is the purpose of tradition and community and religious observance. Um, and uh, if, if, it, if it produces, if it doesn't produce those, engender those feelings and you can't act on them uh, by uh, developing your political, your political and per- principle ideas and behaving better towards other people, that's totally pointless. It's merely dogma. Um, so um, f- uh, for other people, I am sure that what I've described to you isn't God. And they possibly would call me an atheist, but I would never use that term about myself. Mm. Um, uh, and um, I hope that they I would hope that they would have the generosity to see uh, that I want to be part of a communion with them uh, and that that matters and um, I as this combination has um, has allowed me to gain a lot out of Judaism it means that I never question the point of Jewish festivals I understand them 
I understand the point of attending synagogue. I see why I'm giving bar mitzvah. I'm having my uh, children have bar mitzvahs. Um, I uh, I don't think um, my attachment to a religion is meaningless or undermined by my belief. But I accept that my take on it is my take. Mm. There's an author called Francis Spufford who um, I love and has I've spoken to for the sacred, and he t- he wrote a book called Unapologetic why Christianity makes surprising emotional sense. And I think that's often the thing that interests me more, that there are uh, you know, debates we have and some people want to wrestle over um, rationality and evidence and you know, metaphysics and biology. But I do want to ask a, a little bit, and again, it always feels almost as intrusive as asking someone about their sex life, but um, what, does your, what does your practice look like and what is your kind of emotional experience of... Um, of going to synagogue and celebrating those festivals. What is, how, how's it enriching your life? Sure. Well, um, we're not um, people who go to, my family are not people who go to synagogue every week, mm-hmm. but we're not people who don't go to synagogue at all. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I enjoy very, very much being part of the congregation in my synagogue. Um, I'm very happy that the synagogue services in our synagogue are, are, are relatively brief I, I, because I, you know, I like, the way that I always express it is like after an hour, I've got the point and God's got the point. Um, he's quick on the uptake. Uh, and um, so I, um, with that proviso, because I do find it tiresome if it goes on for a long time, I can get a lot out of uh, joining in a service, even though, um, you know, there was a famous th- th- film Woody Allen had with Zelig where he, where Zelig asks the rabbi the meaning of life and he tells him in Hebrew and then asks for a contribution to the synagogue. Um, so the service is in Hebrew and sometimes I can't always, I don't understand every word of it, even though there are translations and I don't necessarily always read the translations because um, that's not really its point. I do find it uplifting. But I, but as I say, I don't um, go all the time. Um, I, uh, we, my parents used to have a Friday evening dinner every week um, we have Friday evening dinners as a family quite often, by which I mean as a family, all of my parents, the three children, our our uh, husbands and wives and our children. Okay. Um, and, um, you know, now our children are getting to that point where we're going to be adding girlfriends and eventually I'm sure we'll be adding grandchildren. Um, uh, so um, not mine at this point, but uh, maybe my brothers. Um, so... Uh, and those are amazing events. And actually, you know, when my parents died, when my when my mum died, eventually we had to um, to sell the house. Uh, and I didn't find the emptying of the house difficult, um, except for the books. It turned out that my dad had really thousands of books of Jewish knowledge and interest. And I just, we, you know, in the end, we just, they were too detailed for me. I didn't want them, but I didn't like giving them away. And we actually sold them to any amount of books. Um, and uh, they came and took them, and I hid in the kitchen while they came and took them. Um, but uh, but when I actually closed the door in the house for the last time, I didn't feel – I sort of thought I was taking all that was important with me. And part of the reason for that is the shared religious traditions and practice of, my, of myself and my siblings. It's not just that. It's our relationship as well, of course. But it's partly that. Mm. Um, you grew up in Hampstead. 
How much of a minority as a uh, Jewish child were you at your school? You know, what was your the kind of psychogeography of that element of your childhood as being someone Jewish in a city in which not everyone is? Well, I wish we'd lived in Hampstead. Unfortunately, we lived in in, in Hendon. Um, but I was very lucky, uh, partly because of the reparations that the Nazis and the uh, or through the, the through the Germans, uh, uh, both my grandmother and my and my mother had. So they that you I'm so sorry I don't I don't didn't really know about that. So they were given money yes. as compensation for having been sent to a concentration yes. well, camp. Well, in my mother's case, and actually, I, uh, oddly enough, as a pension in my grandmother's case, even though my grandmother's was actually in fact um, a prisoner of the Soviets, not the Nazis, but still, um, wow. they, they were they were they both got reparations, and as a result of that, my grandmother worked in a sort of language school. Um, I went to UCS, the school in, in Hampstead, because my, my dad was an academic and my mum was a teacher. So they weren't particularly well-heeled. They were perfectly well-heeled, by the way, but um, but, not, but not so well-heeled necessarily. They would have been able to afford that themselves. But we did go uh, to this school in Hampstead, UCS, which was created as a school that had no uh, denominational background. So it was the part of university college and it was unusual for not being a Christian school or a Jewish school. And interestingly... When I sent my own child to to school, and I asked my father, did I did he think I should send him to a Jewish school or to Watford School, where he in fact did end up going? My father was much more f- for the latter. He didn't really want him to go to a, just a Jewish school. But um, anyway, so that so the, the school was, but it had a lot of Jews in it. Uh, obviously, that had an impact, but I wouldn't say because of its background that really UCS. Uh, University College School had much of an impact, really, on all these things. It didn't because it didn't have religious observance in it. Maybe it led me to a slightly distorted view about the domination of Christianity. In other words, I didn't appreciate how much how much Christianity there was out there. To put it in a, a, a trite way, um, but but in other ways, I don't think it did really have much of an effect. We didn't really have religious services or anything. And. Uh, politics and journalism have been these twin threads in your life. Do you did you have a first love? Which came first? Oh, politics. Uh, that, that's uh, that's absolutely. So my idea originally was to be a politician, um, and um, I politics was always very important to my house. If you think about my background, um, my my grandmother was my mother's uh, my father's mother used to have this statement which is while the queen is safe in buckingham palace we're safe in hendon central uh, and uh, what she meant by that was um you know she believed in the stability of of a sort of bourgeois society really um and um i have always uh, been brought up to believe very strongly in the rule of law um, there's no point in trying to create laws if you want to break them, but they're a protection for everybody. Uh, to have a great respect for the liberal democratic political system. Um, my parents, interestingly, my dad, for example, used to read the Times every day. He didn't like the sketches, even though Matthew Parrish, who wrote them, is a genius. Well, at the time, is a genius. Um, and that is because my father disliked um, poking fun at political leaders. <laughs> It's interesting. I mean, it's not a. It's an interesting an thing about the sacred, there, isn't yes, there? Yes, partly I think it was my father was Polish and a slightly serious upbringing. He wasn't particularly serious. I mean, he, he was a very witty person, but he had a Polish upbringing, and he which led him to a sort of certain curtliness and seriousness, and he didn't like that aspect of the, the frivolity of attacking political leaders. But it was also to do with the fact that my 
parents, um, they understood the difference between a democratic political leadership and dictatorship. They understood that intimately. Um, when people sort of start talking about the EU, SSR, or they, you know, accuse each other of being dictators, um, my parents could tell the could tell the difference between those things. Interestingly, um, while it could have led both of them to see a sort of dictatorial instinct in everything, or to sort of to see Stalin and Hitler in everything. And it does lead some people to do that. It led them to the opposite. They really saw them in nothing. Um, they they thought that to do so was to lack a sense of proportion. And um, they also would never get involved in petty rows. So they never had an argument with their neighbours about a hedge. Right? They would never resign from the synagogue council. Right? They would never quit a committee uh, in fury at the chairman. They would never, and my father was in university, um, in his university career was well known for bringing the engineers together with the new business school uh, because he thought it was ridiculous that because these were two disciplines, everyone in them would disagree. They, they taught me, um, which I try and act upon, but obviously you, one does sometimes fail to have a sense of proportion above all other things. And um, that I've obviously talked about a little bit in other contexts already, uh, but was very much a, a sort of bedrock of my politics. Anyway, so that's a description of, of why politics mattered. Uh, but there are, you know, I, if I'm going to be completely honest about it, it also engaged my interest. I thought it, I came of age 1974 around the time when Watergate was happening uh, I started to read the newspapers in order to read about football turned to the front of the paper when I'd read everything there was to read about football which in the times in the 70s wasn't that much and started to read about politics and it just engaged my interest so from a quite a young age I was fascinated by and engaged with politics politicians political issues partly for the deeper reasons I talked about because its concrete importance to the lives of Jewish people and to the lives of my own parents and grandparents was completely obvious to me and something my parents talked about, partly out of respect that they also taught me as a result of that for the political system and for political leaders and for the country that had taken in my parents, and partly um, as an interest that hobbyists have when they first get to know about something and find they know more about something than other people and therefore double up on the thing that they know about and that's what happened with me in politics so that's so it so so politics yes it started it started with politics and journalism came as a result of that and later yeah there's so much i want to pick up in there but let's just talk about politics and the machine in general because th thinking about the Callahan government I remember going to see this house at the National yes. don't know if you saw it which I was did. a fabulous play um, about that crazy political moment where you've got the Labour government hanging on to power and kind of wheeling in people on gurneys to win votes um, and it's always a helpful thing when I look at politics now and think you know it's not completely without precedent that we've had this level of kind of upheaval but what I don't know is whether it's without precedent of this level of toxicity and someone who's watched politics and been in journalism politics for, for a long time do are you worried about the growing divisiveness and someone who's also interested in data because I've been trying to work out how to evidence it and if you do if you are worried and you think there are increasingly deepening divisions what what what's your theory about what's triggered it okay so first of all um there's an awful lot of toxicity in people's political opinions a lot of the time. Yeah. And lots of issues have produced that uh, kind of uh, response. Uh, 
But I nevertheless think this is, and certainly uh, the Brexit uh, crisis is an unprecedented political crisis, partly because of the clash between the referendum direct mandate and the parliamentary mandate and the inability to resolve that. Um, actually, the, not the inability to resolve it, the unwillingness to evolve, resolve it. All political questions ultimately have to be solved in the following way. The majority will has to uh, uh, take to be satisfied, um, but it must take account of the rights of minorities and the realities of the situation. Um, and um, that's what Parliament exists to do. Jonathan Sumption's wreath lectures are very good on this subject. Um, and if you don't attempt to do this, you get a standoff. I'm very concerned uh, that we may only be at the beginning of this rather than uh, in the middle or at the end. So let's talk a little bit about y your voice and I think one of the things that's going on is a kind of fail failure of character. And I say that someone whose character often fails. So I hope not in a finger pointing way, in a kind of acknowledgement of the fragility of human beings in general and the challenges of power. But one of the things about having a voice in public conversations is I do think there's a moral burden around that. And you work in an, a media environment which the pressure to be increasingly provocative because of the pressure on advertising and the business model and clickbait, etc., is quite strong. And in a political system in which you have party loyalties, how do you how do you navigate? How are you seeking, which you appear to be, to be trying to be part of the problem, part of the solution, and not part of the problem? And what have you learnt? And if you're willing, where have you failed in trying okay. to do that? So look, this is um, a bit pompous what I'm going to say, but I do try, um, and probably people will listen to it thinking, "What a hypocrite!" But I do try as much as I can to show by example that it's possible to engage in political debate in a civilised way that respects the differences that other people have with my opinion. I do fail in that because you end up, uh, I don't know, tweeting an irritation or making particularly provocative responses to people online. Um, I try to avoid doing that, but it is very difficult because you're required. Well, you just need to be your best self at all times of the day and night, and you aren't. Um, but I regret it when I'm not. Um, not sure that's that helpful to anyone else, but I suppose I suppose it's better than nothing. Um, but only a little bit better than nothing. So trying to show self-discipline in debate myself and to show that there's a way of taking on board other people's feelings and thought and ideas in the generous manner uh, is something that I think is possible without thinking nothing and saying nothing. You know, I, I hope I still... Uh, have us make a strong voice for my particular political ideas and thoughts and views, and I'm firm about them. Um, but nevertheless, I'm able to do that um, in a, in a civilized way, um, and I would like that to be my voice. Um, I guess, uh, yeah. Then you asked me about how I fail in that. Um, I guess the most common way I fail is through a lack of diligence and imagination. So the lack of diligence means that you don't always engage in as much understanding of issues which are obviously of concern and where people are suffering or um, where public policy has an impact and you would like to know more because you can't know everything and you can't do everything. I do feel a constant sense of guilt about that, actually, as though I'm just not well enough informed to to grapple with particular problems. And through that lack of diligence, I'm letting people down. I do feel that. 
uh, but that doesn't excuse the fact that it's still the case just because I feel it. Um, but I, I do know that's the case. And then lack of imagination. Sometimes uh, suddenly someone, I, I met someone the other day who was an outreach worker uh, with prostitutes. And uh, he talked to me, I, I was fascinated. He talked to me all about his work and what he'd done. And I have to admit, I hadn't really thought about some of these things. There was lack of imagination. It just hadn't occurred to me. So um, I'm sure that all the time, uh, a lack of uh, imagination and diligence um, are a downside. I tell you the other thing, um, you inevitably have to make choices. And the best example I can give is in the question on the question of welfare reform and welfare. I mean, I use that welfare, welfare spending and welfare cuts. Um, so if you decide, as I do, that the country has to make some choices about spending, that it can put up taxes to a certain point, but at a certain point they become self-defeating because the growth falls and then you can spend even less. Um, you feel that it makes, and these are all contentious points by themselves, but let's take them as working assumptions. You feel that it's necessary to um, to put taxes up in some ways at a certain time, but you have to reduce borrowing and you can't do all of that out of current spending. You end up in a situation where you have to curb the growth of welfare spending um, and you have choices. So, for example, do you pay less to more people or do you curb the number of people that you give it to? If you curb the number of people you give it to, uh, do you do that through making more assiduous efforts to ensure the people who are who receive the benefits are actually eligible for it. And uh, if you do that, you're going to end up making mistakes. You're going to end up entrusting a body to do that that you're not in control of every day and might make uh, two wrong decisions for every six correct ones because all organisations do. Mm. Uh, and sometimes and, with terrible consequences. And I, I feel absolutely I'm morally responsible for that, having made the choices that I've made and encouraged those. But it's a moral responsibility I take quite seriously and assess whether or not I am um, I'm making the correct judgments. Um, uh, sometimes people think those judgments are made solely out of, well, one theory is, you know, malevolence. Um, a more credible theory is out of uh, out of this lack of diligence or imagination, um, but uh, and both of those are charges that that are levelled against people of my persuasion who are fiscal conservatives and who are willing therefore to countenance and if I have to to vote for uh, policies which end up you can see with some people suffering deleterious consequences as a result of it. Um, but uh, my challenge back to them is you've got to be morally serious about these things and you, 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 have, you end up making choices. So if people don't want to do that, which I understand and is acceptable because it has a bad consequence, they've got to decide what else they would do in some sort of credible and concrete way. And to my way of thinking, they often fail in that duty, but that's their failure. That's their moral responsibility. Uh, I put it back to them, uh, but I have to accept mine. Uh, so I do accept that because of the choices that I make and um, the way that I think society can and should be organised, which I definitely think is, you know, optimal and moving towards optimization. So it's not, it's not obviously, there's lots of, uh, it's the optimal method and the optimal type of uh, organization but not every decision is optimal and not every structure is optimal okay let's park that for a minute and just um i want to finally ask you about anti-semitism more explicitly the data shows there has been a rise in anti-semitism um what what does that mean for you and your family and your feelings about putting your opinions out in public okay. so i would say this um 
I think it's very important to, I talked about essential proportion, it's very important to keep essential proportion. I live in this country in a, uh, in a peaceful, law-abiding nation in which I'm, I've been free to have a successful career, a happy family life. Uh, I feel stable and safe in the place where I live. I recognise that's not given to every citizen in this country. Um, and by the way, there are other communities, you know, I'm sure that's true, for example, of the Muslim community who feel um, this less, actually. Um, so uh, I should start by saying um, that to keep it a sense of proportion, I think that this has been a very good country for a Jewish person to grow up in and remains a very good country for Jewish people to live. And if you look at the experience of my parents, yes, of course, we should take the warnings, we should take the uh, the signs um, of danger, uh, but we should also keep a sense of proportion. You know, if I read the, my grandfather's first book, he wrote in 1919 about, um, which is whether there would be pogroms that would be visited into Germany. It's just been translated. It was going to be published soon again in English. And when I read the, the first draft of the translation, you know, the problem in uh, Germany in 1919 bears no resemblance to the situation in this country, however worried we are about it. Mm. So the first thing I should say is you have to keep a sense of proportion. But look, let's also say um, at my 50th birthday party, I said to all the guests, which was uh, now seven years ago, I said to all the guests, uh, what was visited on my parents has not been visited upon me. What was visited on my grandparents has not been visited on me. I've lived all my life in peace. I don't fear that my my children are going to fight in a foreign war. Um, I feel that we live in a stable political liberal democracy. Um, I don't think I'd make the same speech uh, on my, well, if we'd had a 57th birth party, but who does that? Uh, if had a 57th birthday party, I, don't, I wouldn't have made the same speech. Not because I think yet we don't live in such a country, but because it would have rung true my mixture of Jewish and non-Jewish guests. And to me, it wouldn't have quite rung true now. Um, I think there is just a feeling that the liberal law-abiding country in which we've brought, grown up is not as stable and secure uh, from the kind of uh, populist and uh, of both left and right winds that have blown through other European countries uh, and other countries in the world. Um, and you know, one of the ironies of uh, the debate about Israel is this. I would never dream of living... My grandfather wrote a book, actually, in the 1920s, in which he said... Um, it was called Journeys Through Palestine. And he, he said, we shouldn't form a state in this country because there are people who live there already. And in any case, it's miles to the nearest Delhi. You know, we'll never have peace there. And the Zionists in, in Israel, in, in Germany, said, uh, you've got to come. If you don't come, we'll all die. Right, and the great tragedy of the Jews in the 20th century is they were both correct. Right, Amos Oz's father was brought up um, with signs all over the walls of his town: um, "Jews go to Palestine," and now all over Europe the signs are "Jews get out of Palestine." Right, so this has been the, the constant uh, uh, tragedy of Jewish people um, over over homeland and over the diaspora, and I absolutely. Uh, it's absolutely fascinating that the, the, the more that the debate has heated, heats up about Israel in this country, uh, the more convinced I am that it's necessary. It, I would never want to live in that country because I feel like my grandfather does, right? It's near, it's miles to the nearest Delhi. I mean, it's obviously not now, but, you know, it's it's not my home. It's not the place. It doesn't speak my language. I'm, don't, I'm not Israeli in any way whatsoever. 
the way that the political debate has gone in this country, you think to yourself, well, I'm glad it's there, right? Uh, because then I can answer the question, what should I do uh, if the situation becomes too uncomfortable in this country? I, I really don't think that's going to happen. Um, I, I don't. Uh, and I don't go through every day worrying about it either. Um, but whereas in my 20s, in my right up until I was about 50, I would have dismissed that quite curtly. I don't dismiss it now in the same way. Daniel Finkelstein, thank you so much for speaking with me. Thank you.